welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 175, The Great Commoner. This week I want to talk about a political figure of 20th century Japan with whom we have not spent that much time, but whose impact is truly undeniable. In one sense, today is going to be another biography episode. In another, it's nothing less than an outline of how pre-war Japanese democracy came to be. Our subject today is Hara Takashi, also known as Harake. Both are possible readings for the character used in his given name. Hara was born in 1856 in Morioka Domain, which is now a part of Iwate Prefecture. The ruling family of Morioka was the Nanbu clan, an old family with roots that could be traced all the way back to the ancient Minamoto clan. More importantly for our purposes, the Nanbu clan had picked what was the right side back in 1600. The clan head made the decision to support Tokugawa Ieyasu at the Battle of Sekigahara, and as a result, he received a position as a Fudai Daimyo. One of the lords whose loyalty to the Tokugawa was considered strong, and whose privileges were expanded to reflect that. Unfortunately for young Harutakashi, the position of his lord would be something of a political impediment in his own career. When the Boshin War began in 1868, Morioka Domain remained true to the Tokugawa, and the Nanbu family were among the lords who joined the Northern Alliance and continued to fight against the Meiji Restoration even after Tokugawa Yoshinobu surrendered. While the Nanbu family did not hold out to the bitter end, once it became clear how things were going to shake out, they surrendered rather than risk annihilation, that stand against the imperial court was not soon forgotten. Men from Morioka were viewed with suspicion early in the history of the empire. Now, Hara's nickname later in his career was the Great Commoner, but that name had a lot more to do with Hara's skill at playing politics than it did with reality. Hara was not a commoner. He was born to one of the most prestigious families in Morioka Domain, with a rank just under the members of the Nambu family itself. For centuries, his family had been among the most trusted retainers of the Nambu family, and while their samurai status vanished at the end of the domain system, Hara would receive a consolation prize, the title of Shizoku, a member of the lower peerage, equivalent to, say, a knighthood in the UK. Still, even Shizoku's status could not overcome being the son of a treacherous domain that had resisted the imperial restoration. When Hara left home for Tokyo to try and make a name for himself, he quickly discovered that it would not be easy to escape his background. At the age of 15, Hara began to put together an application to the Officer Academy of the Imperial Japanese Navy. He figured, not without reason, that the Navy tended to be open to people of all domain backgrounds. This, recall, is the same tactic that Yamamoto Isoroku would use several decades later. Barred from serving in the army because he too was born in a traitorous domain, he went for the Navy, which, remember, before the Russo-Japanese War was the less prestigious service, and thus, at the time, could not afford to be as choosy. Still, in Hara's day, the Navy was not that desperate. When he applied in the early 1870s to be admitted to the Naval Officer Academy, he was rejected. So now what? Well, Hara's options were limited. Even when Nambu Domain had been at the height of its Tokugawa-supported glory, 
his family had not been extremely wealthy. By 1870, the Domain's resources had been stripped down substantially in punishment for joining the Northern Alliance. That meant a pay cut across the board for all retainers of the Nanbu family, including Hara's own family. So his new family couldn't afford to send him anywhere fancy, like, say, a private school, Fukuzawa Yukichi's new Keio University being an example. A school like that would have taken him regardless of background, but the Hara family just didn't have the cash for that kind of thing anymore. Instead, Hara scraped together an education from a variety of sources, one of which, according to some of the sources I've located, may have been a Roman Catholic seminary operated by the French government. Now, Hara could definitely speak French, but as to whether or not he went to a seminary, and some versions of this story suggest he was even baptized, well, I don't really see that as pretty likely. He doesn't seem like the religious type to me. Hara was a political operative more than anything else. Christianity did not pull well in Imperial Japan. I'm not saying one way or another that this did not happen, I just haven't been able to find confirmation for it, and it strikes me as suspicious. What we do know is that with the education he was able to piece together while working a few different side jobs, he was eventually able to be accepted to the prestigious law department of Tokyo Imperial University. The law department did not, and still does not, just teach law. It's also home to related disciplines like philosophy and history. It also was, and still is, the primary feeder into the most prestigious post-graduation positions in the government bureaucracy, academia, and politics. So this was what set him on his course later in life. It's interesting to wonder how different Japan's history could have been had he succeeded in his first ambition and joined the Navy, one of Japan's best political minds could very well have never made it into politics. Anyway, during Hara's tenure at the Imperial University, he proved to be a talented, but not necessarily academically inclined, student. Bright, but not willing to engage in the hours and hours of grinding study that was required to succeed in the department. Eventually, he left school without completing his degree, and worked an odd job as a reporter for a few years. However, in 1882, he got his big break. His reporting brought him to the attention of Inoue Kaoru, the foreign minister and a man with an impeccable background as a supporter of the Meiji Restoration. Inoue offered Hara a job at the foreign ministry, and Hara accepted, launching his official career. Early on, the foreign minister took something of a personal interest in advancing Hara's career, for example, fast-tracking young Hara into prestigious posts such as Consul General for Japan's Consulate in Tianjin, China, and a posting at the very prestigious Paris Embassy. Even after Inoue left the foreign ministry, Hara's career continued to blossom. He actually eventually climbed to the post of Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, which is the highest position you can reach in the foreign ministry without receiving a political appointment. In the end, however, Hara decided that the foreign ministry was just not for him. Why? Well, I'm not quite sure. Hara was an intensely private man who did keep a very substantive diary that was edited and published after his death, in the manner of most Japanese politicians. However, that diary makes no mention of what motivated this decision. We can only speculate. 
Perhaps Hara preferred domestic policy to foreign issues. Perhaps he didn't like working with elitist bureaucratic types. Perhaps, and I think this is the most likely answer, but it's just me speculating, he smelled which way the political wind was blowing and wanted to get in on the ground floor. By 1883, the government had announced that Japan would have a Western-style constitution by the end of the decade and that said constitution would include some provision for representative government. What form that was going to take was as yet unclear, but any kind of representative assembly, including the essentially neutered one Japan ended up getting in 1889, would still allow for some kind of public debate on the issues. And that opened up all kinds of possibilities, for the legislators who would do the actual debating, for policy experts to guide them, and most importantly for Hara, for journalists to shape opinion around the issues. So Hara returned to journalism in 1888 and latched on to one of Japan's oldest newspapers, the Osaka Mainichi Shimbun. Hara would eventually become the paper's managing editor, and while it dropped the Osaka from its name eventually, the Mainichi Shimbun is still around today. It's one of Japan's largest papers. From his role at the Mainichi, Hara was able to make a name for himself in the world of Japanese politics, during the final decade of the 19th century. It was also during his time at the Mainichi that Hara started to find his voice. Hara's politics were somewhat at odds with his own background. He claimed, in his editorials, to champion the cause of the masses of Japanese people. Now, it's important to stop here and remember how the original design of the Japanese diet worked. Japan did not have universal male suffrage until 1925, and truly universal suffrage would have to wait until after World War II. In 1889, when the Constitution was first ratified, a person had to be A, a man, and B, pay more than a certain amount of taxes annually, specifically 15 yen, at a time when that was worth a lot more money than it is today. That restricted the electorate to around 450,000 people, or slightly over 1% of the population. That tax qualification would steadily be lowered over time until it was eventually abolished, but still, early in the history of the empire, voting was literally a game for the 1%. In such a climate, Hara claimed to champion the cause of what he called average people for representation. For Hara, average people meant the middle class, propertied business types who were not quite rich enough for a seat at the table. Hara's editorials championed greater representation for this group, and most famously at this point in his career, Hara renounced his status as part of the Shizoku, the minor gentry, that he had inherited from his samurai descent. Thus the nickname he was given at this time, which stuck with him his entire life, the Great Commoner. Now, it's worth noting that the exact depth of Hara's convictions are a bit open to question. Indeed, one of the most renowned historians of modern Japan, Marius Jansen, said of Hara that he would do nothing or say nothing to genuinely attack Japan's elites because he wanted to become one himself. In other words, Jansen believed that Hara championed the voice of the people to advance his own political agenda. Whether or not that's actually the case, well, it's hard to say, Saying one way or the other would require a knowledge of Hara's own state of mind, which of course we just don't have. 
However, whether or not his activism was genuine, Hara found support, because he did capture the mood of the age, particularly among Japanese politicians. These politicians were, remember, not exactly commoners, it's true. Japan's first politicians were representatives of the 1% of the population wealthy enough to vote, so it's no surprise that they themselves were pretty well-to-do. However, both what we would call the upper class and what we would call the middle class in the 1890s held a strong antipathy to the actual rulers of Japan, the Meiji oligarchs. These are the leading figures of the early years of Imperial Japan, Ito Hirobumi, Yamagata Aritomo, those kind of people. Their legacy certainly was tremendous, but they were also not terribly popular outside of the government itself. Why? Well, they just didn't really want to share power. Yamagata and Ito, the two most influential men in the government, were staunchly authoritarian, and felt that the job of those who were not in the government was to shut up and get in line with policy. The Diet was designed to be a fig leaf to appease Western notions of constitutional government, as well as Japan's homegrown freedom and people's rights movement, whose liberal ideas, modeled on those of the French Revolution, were so revolting to the Meiji leadership that they cut a deal with the Yakuza to keep known members of the movement away from the polls for the 1890 election by force. Both the people who already could vote and the ones who wanted to be able to thus shared a desire for those votes to count for something, and a dislike of the government's attempt to shut the legislature out of policymaking. Hara was able to appeal to both constituencies. In the end, he was able to translate that appeal to a political career thanks to the advent of a new kind of political organization, the Riken Seyukai. The Constitutional Friends of Government Party, or Riken Seyukai, was an attempt by Ito Hirobumi to answer this vexing issue of opposition from what I guess we can just go ahead and call the bourgeoisie, the wealthy non-aristocrats. For ten years after the founding of the Diet, this constituency fought against the policies of the government. The Constitution limited how much they could do, but they seized on every opportunity to make their case. In the end, Ito figured he could try and co-opt them rather than fight against them. By creating his own political party and trying to use it to mobilize support in the Diet for government policy, he hoped to be able to direct things more and spend less time fighting against his own representative body. For Hara Takashi, this was the opening he needed. Hara had influence among the constituency that Ito needed to support the party, and by supporting the party, Hara could curry favor with one of Japan's most powerful leaders. So it was that Hara Takashi joined the Seiyukai almost as soon as it was formed, becoming the organization's first secretary. Two years later, in the first general election after the Seiyukai was formed, Ito arranged a spot on the slate for Hara, and Hara was elected to represent Iwate Prefecture in the lower house. When he entered the Seiyukai, Hara Takashi quickly developed a rather unique relationship with Ito Hirobumi, because, you see, by all accounts, both men hate, hate, hated each other. Ito found Hara to be an ump-jumped and unprincipled political backstabber. Hara found Ito to be stuffy and unpleasant. Yet each one needed the other. Hara's rise into a position of political power 
was tied to Ito's patronage since Ito ran the Seyukai, and Ito needed Hara to rally support for government policy in the Diet. Still, mutual need could only do so much to override personal incompatibility. In particular, when Ito decided he'd had enough of running the Seyukai directly, he snubbed Hara in choosing his successor. Even though Hara was one of the Seyukai's best political minds, Ito chose the doddering and politically uninspiring Sionji Kinmochi, another aristocrat and member of the oligarchy of advisors behind the emperor. Hara was thus, for now, denied access to control of the party. Sionji, incidentally, is a really interesting dude, and I really want to do something on him at some point. He's like the B-lister of early 20th century Japanese history. He's everywhere, but nobody ever notices him. Sionji would stay in government in some capacity until his death in 1940, and was everywhere from the Paris Peace Conferences after World War I to those final dark moments before Pearl Harbor. But he was also neither a shrewd negotiator nor terribly charismatic, so... Picking Sionji over Hara to run a political party was, well, strange, unless you account for that mutual hatred. Now, I'm going to gloss over a good chunk of Hara's actual time in office because while he was involved in some very intense political maneuvering, it's all kind of arcane and incidental to the point I'm trying to make with this episode. So we're going to hit fast forward from 1902 to 1918, as I fill you in on the general trend of Japanese politics during that 18-year period. To be honest, a lot of this is probably pretty fresh for you because we just went over some of it in relation to the Russo-Japanese War. Basically, the military needed more money, at first to fight Russia, and then to for the army to defend all the shiny new toys it had taken from Russia, and for the navy to go find someone else to fight. Military budgets started to balloon, and all of a sudden, the Diet's ability to prevent the budget from increasing gave it a lot of leverage in negotiating with the oligarchy. At the same time, Ito Hirobumi's assassination in 1909 meant that the oligarch most willing to work with the Diet was now dead. As a result, the Diet and the oligarchs started to head for a political crisis. The first such came in 1912, with what we call the Taisho political crisis. Basically, the army and navy, peeved at the unwillingness of political party leaders, like Sionji, to offer them larger budgets, brought down two successive cabinets by having the army and navy ministers resign and refusing to appoint new ones. Because remember, the army and navy select their own representatives to the cabinet. Without those representatives, new government can't be formed, Thus, the cabinet falls. Eventually, the emperor himself, by which I of course mean other oligarchs pulling the string of the emperor, had to step in and order the army and navy to behave themselves and seriously, guys, let the government actually function. However, before that happened, protests broke out on the streets of Tokyo. Average Japanese were furious at the crisis and what they saw as an attempt to undercut constitutional government. Takashi and the other members of the Seyukai egged on their rage and encouraged them to protest. This did not endear Hara to the more oligarchic members of the government. Influential men like Yamagata Aritomo considered him a populist rabble-rouser. Nor did Japan's growing crop of right-wing ultranationalists think very highly of him for encouraging protests against the military. Yet Hara did not really care what they thought. 
he managed to secure a hugely beneficial result from the protests, with some civilian oversight of the military now mandated by law. In particular, an end to the Army and Navy's ability to appoint active duty members of those services as their ministers. A second opportunity came in 1918 as the First World War came to a close. Remember, Japan did very well out of World War I. It essentially operated as a clearinghouse for the Entente powers, selling them spare parts, weapons, medical supplies, pretty much anything else they needed, with a small convenience fee attached, of course. As the war wound down and purchases from the Allies started to dry up, however, that economic stimulus began to go away, and the Japanese economy creeped toward recession. That problem was made worse by the military, which had decided to involve itself in the Russian Civil War. To feed its troops in Siberia, the army began buying up huge quantities of foodstuffs, driving up the price of rice just at the time when most Japanese could not afford to be paying more. The result was one of the largest civil disturbances in the history of Japan, the 1918 Rice Riots. The problem started in July 1918 with peaceful protesters in Toyama Prefecture. By the next month, tens of thousands of protesters were rioting in the streets and throwing firebombs at police precincts. The sitting Prime Minister, Terauchi Masatake, was a disciple of Yamagata Aritomo and a supporter of oligarchic government, and strongly against representative democracy. Unsurprisingly, he came in for a substantial amount of criticism from the protesters, who blamed his oligarchic tendencies for economic and military policies, which caused hardship for average people. By September 1918, it was clear that Terauchi could not get the riots under control, and he was forced to resign. But who would be the new prime minister? Yamagata Aritomo, in consultation with his chief advisors, began to consider the options. Who was sufficiently reliable? Who could mollify the protesters? And lo and behold, Hara Takashi's name came up. Yamagata initially was very hesitant, both for personal and political reasons. Personally, Yamagata despised Hara as a rabble-rouser whose work as a party politician was divisive. Politically, Yamagata worried about the implications of naming Hara to the post. Hara, you see, was by this point the president of the Seyukai. He's ousted Sayonji Kimochi from the top spot of the party in 1914, after it became clear that Sayonji was not a good political organizer. In parliamentary democracies like that of the UK, the prime minister is the head of the majority party. Appointing Hara to the top spot could set the precedent that Japan was now some kind of democracy, which was something the anti-democratic Yamagata was worried about endorsing. However, he was eventually convinced that he had no choice by his advisors. Those same advisors reached out to Hara, who promised through back channels that he would follow Yamagata's lead on policy. Mollified, Yamagata supported the appointment of Hara to the prime ministership, and so it was that the great commoner took office as Japan's head of government in September 1918. Hara's appointment made him the first prime minister in Japan's history not to be either a part of the Genro, the oligarchic group of Meiji-era leaders, or a leader from the military. He was the first civilian to hold office, and thanks to the official renunciation of his status as a member of the Shizoku class, 
the first commoner to become prime minister. Once in office, Hara proved good to his word to Yamagata. Despite the fact that as prime minister with his party in majority in the diet, he could theoretically have done so, Hara refused to push through legislation providing for universal suffrage. He also refused to order the army out of Siberia. The Siberian intervention would drag on until after his tenure in office ended. And here is where I think Hara showed his true character. He was not a populist or a man of the people. He was a man who saw advocating for populist causes as a route to the top. I agree with Marius Jansen. In the end, Hara was not willing to use his newfound power to anger Japan's oligarchic leaders because he didn't want to tear them down. He wanted to join them. Hara's three years in office were thus marked by his spiraling popularity. He went from being a champion of the people to being despised by the military for his support of post-World War I arms reduction talks, by the oligarchs for the way in which he rose to power, and by the people for his failure to follow through on all his populist talk. Yet Hara ran a disciplined party machine, and the members of the Seiyukai were generally loyal to him, and as a result, he proved very difficult to get out of office. In the end, Hara Takashi would leave the prime ministership in a body bag. In 1921, on the way to a party conference in Osaka, Hara boarded a sleeper train in Tokyo. There, a railway worker and rightist named Nakaoka Konichi stabbed Hara. The prime minister died shortly thereafter. Upon being arrested, Nakaoka claimed he'd killed Hara because of the Prime Minister's narrow partisanship. Hara's support for party government was divisive and undercut the unity of the Japanese state. Nakaoka was sentenced to life in prison. In the end, he served only 13 years of that sentence. In 1934, after the military brought an end to civilian government, he was freed from prison as a hero. So what then is the legacy of Hara Takashi, this political outsider who ruthlessly and pragmatically climbed the political ladder? He was not a hero of the common people, for sure. I think his actions once he became prime minister made it clear that he did not give a damn about the people. However, he had one enduring legacy. In the crisis around his assassination, Hara's successor was chosen the same way he had been. The Sayukai selected a new president and then demanded that the new party head be made prime minister. The government, not wanting any more protests, agreed. So Hara Takashi set the precedent that the prime minister was no longer an unaccountable appointee selected by the Genro and serving at their pleasure, but a party man who held his spot by the virtue of the same authority that upheld parliamentary democracies around the world, the support of the majority party. He himself, again, was not a populist, but the people who came after him were. Though Hara did not end up supporting the initiative, eventually the civilian government, for example, forced through universal suffrage. Hara's initiatives to involve Japan in the new post-war liberal order led by the United States were continued by the civilian leaders who came after him. This liberal party government system would not survive for long. By 1932, when an increasingly radicalized military assassinated yet another prime minister, it was functionally dead. But I still think that legacy is important. This is, of course, impossible to prove, but I do think that one of the reasons that democracy in Japan did actually take root 
unlike some other countries where people have attempted to go in and establish it, is that Japan, in 1945, had its own native democratic tradition. Parliamentary government was not some foreign innovation that had never existed in Japan before. It was a restoration of a system they themselves had had, if only for a brief decade. Haratakashi was a self-serving political wheeler and dealer. He was also the man who probably went the furthest before 1945 in dragging Japan from an oligarchy to an actual representative government. In both the best and worst senses of the notion, he shaped what Japanese politics is, and what Japanese politicians are, down to this very day. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Chris Farrell for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening. This is actually our last episode of 2016. This time next week, I'll be on a plane flying to New York, preparing to celebrate my wedding. It's been a long time coming. We just celebrated our eight-year anniversary this year. So I'll be taking some time off to do things right. So I won't see you all again until Saturday, January 7th, 2017. So until next we meet, have a lovely holiday, and I'll see you all in the new year.